Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. Across the country, teachers are asking remote students to turn their cameras on. You can imagine teaching someone you perhaps have never seen. You do not even know if there's someone on the other end. From the New England News Collaborative, this is Next. As concerns rise over youth mental health, we'll hear about efforts from doctors and teachers to help kids who are struggling. And some school districts can't find enough teachers during the pandemic. I do not have the ability to cover all of their classes, even for the rest of the day. There just weren't the bodies that we could pull that would have satisfied that puzzle. How Massachusetts is trying to fix the shortage. Plus, when a Vermonter's business plummeted last year, she donned an inflatable T-Rex costume and started dancing. You know, in the beginning, clearly it was always just a joke and we're like this can't keep going but it is we'll keep doing it i can't believe we're gonna have to get snowshoes for these suits but maybe (laughs) it's next next is produced at connecticut public radio and is powered by the new england news collaborative 10 public media companies coming together to tell the story of a changing region with support from the corporation for public broadcasting i'm morgan springer Thanks for joining us. It's been over 10 months since the pandemic began, and many students are returning to a third semester of school impacted by COVID-19. Today on the show, we're going to look at some of the challenges students, teachers, and districts are facing as 2021 begins. We'll start with mental health. Public health officials have been warning for months about the potential risks to kids' social and emotional well-being during remote schooling. Now doctors in Springfield, Massachusetts, are increasingly concerned as youth mental health cases rise in clinics and emergency rooms. New England Public Media's Ben James has this story about doctors and teachers and the teenagers they're trying to help. Please note, this story contains discussion of suicide. Across the country, there are middle and high school teachers begging their students to turn on their Zoom cameras. You can read their angst-ridden posts on Twitter and Facebook. I can hear their pleas coming from the laptop in my 14-year-old son's bedroom. He rarely turns on his camera, by the way. One high school teacher I've been keeping track of is Daniel Theombiano. Connecting with challenging students is what he does. That's his thing. Not this year. I've had some students who you know, will not even turn on their cameras. You can imagine teaching someone you perhaps have never seen. You do not even know if there's someone on the other end. Theombiano teaches ninth grade earth sciences at Holyoke High, where most students are still attending class remotely. He says he has five students who've had family members die of COVID within the last couple months. Some parents are dealing with food insecurity and unemployment. The strain on students is palpable. One key symptom of such stress and an onset of depression, really, is, is a total lack of self-motivation. During one of our interviews, Theombiano received a call from the parent of a student in the midst of a panic attack. He describes some students as bombarded with so many issues they simply cannot perform academically. Then he introduced me to ninth grader Lily Nieves. She is not one of those students. Me, personally, I suffer from depression, and my depression sometimes gets the best of me, and I'm not in the best mood. Sometimes, but, like, I have to try putting 
dad behind me and push myself to do this because this is high school. It's different. Nieves says some aspects of remote school actually make it easier for her to push herself. And she does turn on her camera. I have insecurities myself. I really do. But I have to like put myself out there in a way. But an unusually high number of students aren't managing to rally. The student that just stops is our biggest concern. Stephen Mahoney, former principal at Holyoke High and now an administrator for the district. He says he's concerned about a rise in students who are, in his words, moving out of formal education. A lot of our students went out and got jobs. We have more students trying to balance work, family, and school than ever before. Economic stress, the tedium of remote school, disconnection from friends. These are all of tremendous concern to Dr. John O'Reilly, chief of general pediatrics at Bay State. We're starting to see more of mental health issues that are coming out of this sense of social isolation, issues of school disruption, and issues of disruption with peers. O'Reilly says physicians at his Springfield clinic are seeing a sharp increase in somatic symptoms in younger kids, things like stomach aches and headaches with no clear cause. Teenage mental and behavioral health issues are also up. Anxiety, sleep problems, substance abuse, and self-harm. So for an adolescent, their social peer group is critical to their social-emotional development. A lot of adolescents will have a fight with their parents and then go to their friend's house and complain about their parents or complain about their siblings. That complaining is a good thing. But without school and other places to meet friends... Those conversations that were happening in person are not happening. For some teenagers, the pressure just keeps building. Ellie Dutoy is coordinator for Mobile Crisis Intervention, which serves youth for the Behavioral Health Network. She says her doctors are seeing suicide attempts from kids who are isolated and struggling with online learning. When I see numerous children coming in having made an attempt on their life because of how isolated and lonely they're feeling, that to me feels really scary, as scary as a virus in some ways. Dutoy says crisis physicians are seeing black and Latino kids at higher rates. They're also seeing increasing numbers of lesbian, gay, and transgender kids who she says are feeling really isolated. Particularly if they're coming from homes where their families aren't necessarily accepting of their identity, where they've always accessed that support through school, through their peers, through teachers. And this is why you have teachers literally begging their students to turn on their cameras. Sure, they have lessons to teach, but more often it's because teachers know what's at stake when a teenager fully disengages from school. Some teachers are shifting their lessons, trying to make stronger connections with their students. There's a lot of things that I would have considered silly that I've been doing this year because I feel like kids are just in such a challenging place emotionally. Sarah Banning teaches 10th grade English at the Springfield Renaissance School, which remains entirely remote. In one assignment, students wrote instructions on how to make a peanut butter sandwich. And then, over Zoom, she followed their directions to the word. Some kids would be like, put the peanut butter on the bread. And so I would take the peanut butter and just place it on the bread. And I'd be like, did I do it right? Her students cracked up as she literally scooped the peanut butter out of the jar with her hand. My, like, grounding principle has been joy. Renaissance is a magnet school that says it has managed to get 90 to 95 percent of their students on camera almost every day. There are a lot of factors involved in that success. Team teaching, strong student support, consistent expectations from class to class. And when students turn their cameras on, Banning says, it sends a message. 
like you are present, you are here, like we can see you or we can see most of you, like we know who you are. I mean, kids hate structure, but they also love and crave structure. One reason students can be hesitant to turn on their cameras is because they share their workspace with siblings. That's the case for 10th grader Madison Nicholson Franklin, one of Banning's students. Here on Zoom, she's answering a question about remote learning from me when she gets interrupted. Because um, we're not in class. She went to work. And even if we are... Nicholson Franklin is a dedicated student. She's psyched about Ms. Banning's open writing assignment on Maya Angelou's poem, Still I Rise. But this learning from home situation is tough. It's hard for me to focus. It's hard for me to get my work done. I don't know, it's just hard. And another thing that's hard is like having motivation. Focus and motivation. Many kids in remote school are struggling with these right now. Still, Ellie Dutoy from the Behavioral Health Network says caregivers should be on the lookout for unusual behaviors from their kids. If you're noticing that your child is suddenly eating less, sleeping all day or up all night, having that like reverse sleep schedule is a big sign. If they're, if they just seem like shut down. These are all warning signs. And the first step, Dutoy says, is to reach out to the child's pediatrician. Looking to the future, Bay State's John O'Reilly says based on the science of COVID transmission, he believes elementary schools throughout the region should be open this spring. Middle and high schools, he says, may have to wait a bit longer. And while it'll be a while before most kids can get vaccinated, he has this message for parents. Get the vaccine as soon as you can. Get the vaccine done so your kid can start school in September. Because your kid needs to be in school. Ninth grader Lily Nieves agrees. She wants to be in school. But it's not only so she can get back to in-person classes. Like, I want to interact with people that I don't know and I could possibly become friends with them. That thing that teenagers do best. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Ben James. If you or a loved one is experiencing suicidal thoughts, the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline is available 24-7 at 1-800-273-8255. Now we head to Maine, where some high schoolers and their parents are frustrated and dissatisfied at an education that's been so significantly altered. And those feelings could have major impacts on how many students, particularly those from rural parts of the state, will choose to go to college. Maine Public Radio's Robbie Feinberg has more. Good morning, Alexis. Good morning. How are you? As the school day gets underway at Bucksport High School, Principal Josh Tripp welcomes students as they hop off the bus. There was a time when many would have had their lives already planned out, graduate from high school and go to work at the local Verso paper mill. But when it closed about six years ago, hundreds of local manufacturing jobs went with it. And Tripp says it forced students to rethink their futures. You know, kids know that they can't just walk out these doors, go down the street, and they're going to have that $45,000 a year job waiting for them. Um, doesn't mean that they have to go to college, but they have to have a plan when they leave here. To help students with that plan, the school has tried to make applying to college a bit more fun. A few years ago, it launched twice-yearly events where families would pack the gym. There'd be food and raffles for laptops, all incentives to get the families to fill out federal financial aid forms, a critical step in the college application process that's considered a strong predictor of whether students will ultimately enroll. We need to get them just to fill it out. Whether they go on to college or not, um, we just need them to fill it out. 
but because of the pandemic, students are harder to reach, and Bucksport and other schools across Maine are already seeing worrying indications that the effects could be drastically altering students' post-high school plans. This huge gap is unprecedented, which we can anticipate, but now, so now what? What do we do about that? Mary Callen is the project director for Gear Up Maine, which helps rural students pursue post-secondary education. She says that process requires close relationships and one-on-one interaction. But this year, admissions events and field trips to campuses have now been replaced with emails and online presentations, as many families are more focused on the immediate stresses caused by the pandemic. Callan says of the more than 800 high school seniors that her group helped apply last year, more than 40% never actually ended up enrolling in college this fall. That's nearly double the rate of previous years. And that's going to be very hard to recover, if, if we can recover it ever. I mean, that's a big drop. Early indications for this year's high school seniors aren't much better. In rural Maine schools, the percentage who've completed federal financial aid forms is down by nearly 20 percent. In Bucksport, senior Ethan Lozier says he does expect to attend college next year and has already been accepted. But he says after months of struggling with online classes in high school, he questions the value of college if he can't learn in person. But I'm sure that there are thoughts, they've been in my mind, why do I want to go and have online classes like this and spend many thousands of dollars? And remote and hybrid learning have also had a chilling effect on mentoring. Teachers say that with fewer interactions with students, it can be difficult to even find time to discuss the prospects of college. Bucksport science teacher Katie Hunter says one student with whom she had lunch with every day last year isn't even showing up to class this fall. She's fallen off the radar and it kills me. And it doesn't matter how many times we've tried to contact home. It's just impossible, um, and it's sad and frustrating because you feel helpless, and you know that this person is very capable and, and a good person, and you know that, like, this is... I don't think they realize what this is going to do to their futures, um, so it's really hard. Hunter says she's trying out new strategies over the next few months, including texting to reach seniors. Administrators are also trying to bring in recent graduates to talk to seniors and give them an honest assessment of what remote and hybrid learning have been like on campus this fall. And on the college side, Mila Tappan of the Finance Authority of Maine says many schools are trying to come up with new incentives to entice students to attend recruitment events. Um, colleges were saying the other day, you know, it, is it sweatshirts? You know, is that what is that what's going to get students to come? Will they come to an event if they think there's there's a sweatshirt or some other, you know, swag from the college? Um, I think we're going to see where that line is. And if this fall's college application trend continues, education and workforce experts worry that Maine could see a further decline in skilled workers who will be needed as the state recovers from the pandemic. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Robbie Feinberg. That story was produced in collaboration with the Heckinger Report. College enrollment has gone down throughout the country, particularly among freshmen. The same is true for students attending K-12 public schools. New Hampshire, Maine, Massachusetts, Rhode Island, and Connecticut have all had between a 2 to 4% drop in student enrollment since last school year. That's according to data from the Associated Press. Jenny Weiner is an associate professor of educational leadership at the University of Connecticut. She joins us to talk about this trend and the potential long-term impacts. Professor, welcome to Next. 
Thank you so much for having me. So as we look at these declines in public school enrollment, do we have a sense of how many of these kids are getting an alternate education, like private school or homeschooling, and how many have dropped out altogether? Well, I think it's important first to say that when we see the kind of how the numbers are being distributed, the largest numbers of sort of declines in enrollment tend to be amongst our youngest students. So that's people pulling their children who are at the kindergarten or first grade, right, preschool, places where they would initially enter the school system. And then, of course, we have enrollment, smaller smatterings of declining enrollment across sort of the K-12 spectrum. um, And those tend to be more either homeschooling, parochial schooling, or private schooling. Yeah, so as you mentioned, this trend of particularly seeing a decline in in enrollment in pre-K and kindergarten, we're seeing that nationally. We've also got data supporting that in Connecticut, Maine, and Massachusetts. And why do you think this group particularly? Yes, safety is an issue, particularly for youngest children and their ability to, let's say, adhere to COVID protocols within the context of school, if the school, in fact, is open, right? So we can imagine masking a a four-year-old, a five-year-old, a six-year-old, having them be able to keep their hands and bodies six feet away. Also, the kinds of supports and comfort that they need during the day. I mean, a crying child or a child who needs the comfort of a teacher or a teacher's aide or the ability of a friend for a hug, those kinds of things, right? Those are not as available under these conditions. I think the second thing is questions about the degree to which if the school in fact is physically closed but offering, let's say, online learning, the questions about the appropriateness or even the capacity of a young child to sit at a Zoom call or do online learning during that time. I mean, I I have fourth grade twins um, and they still require an eyeball during the day. So you can imagine a very young child needing quite a lot of oversight and care from a parent who may not feel, right, if they have to be home, the difficulty of taking care of a child or fighting with a child or, you know, cajoling them into doing this may be more than it feels to be worth it given the other circumstances. Yeah, that's a really good point. So another big concern when student enrollment goes down in public schools is, of course, funding. What could be the impact? I mean, I think this is tremendously, tremendously problematic. So schools are funded primarily from property taxes. So about 45% of funding for schools comes from localities or municipalities based on property taxes. States match that. um, And then about 10% comes from the federal government. And schools are funded based on how many students are enrolled. Now, things may be problematic anyway, even if we didn't have huge disparities going into the COVID pandemic. But because there were already existing inequities, you can imagine what how the kind of devastation this could cause amongst our neediest schools and school children. Particularly, right, then if we then add the fact that many of these children are food insecure. I mean, one in six children currently in the United States lives in poverty, and those are concentrated areas, although more distributed after the COVID pandemic. So we could see the fire mass firings of, um, let's say, extra support supports, right, non-essential workers, meaning non-teachers, essential to children, but not considered essential in the same way, nurses, social workers, bus drivers. I mean, all of this is at risk and most at risk amongst children who need it the most. So I think the impact can be devastating. If schools can open normally next year, do you think enrollment will bounce back? 
I think this is a really good question. I mean, I think enrollment for some of the younger children will probably bounce back to some degree. I mean, I wonder, I was, I was talking to somebody else about this. I mean, choosing a school for your child is not like choosing a car, right? There's an emotional investment. If your child is happy, uh, doing well, thriving, and you've been able to find a parochial or private school that's been open and attended to your child's needs, your, your desire potentially to move that child back into the public system, even though it's free through tax dollars, may not be as high as switching something else, a cable company or something, you know, um, that feels, let's say, less emotionally involved. So I, I think the jury's still out. I'd like to think that people would come back. But, you know, my children have not been in school since March 13th. We are affiliated with the public school and we're doing virtual learning, but it's it's felt like a long time. And I can imagine families being reluctant to move their child yet again from another learning environment into a new one. Right. You mentioned you have two fourth grade twins and you wrote a New York Times op-ed titled, I refuse to run a coronavirus homeschool. What has it been like for you as a parent during this time? Hmm. Yes. Um, what has it been like, like as a parent? I would say um, difficult. You know, I work full time. My husband works full time. We don't live near family. Um, like many people, we've been 100% you know, responsible for our children's ensuring that our children are getting online and facilitated learning. So it's been hard. You know, if I had my druthers, I wouldn't do it again. Yeah, you wrote that basically not to be too hard on yourself. You're not going to kick yourself for your kids watching too much TV. What advice do you have for other parents or for educators um, as this pandemic school year continues? I think part of the advice I might have is just to try, if you can, to worry about the things you can worry about today, and we can worry about the things we can't worry about today, tomorrow, in the sense that, you know, there's been a lot of talk about this idea of learning loss and the long-term repercussions of this and what it will all mean in the future. We don't really know what's going to happen. We don't really know what children will experience or have experienced. Um, and I think the best thing that we can do is plan the best we can, keep moving forward, and try to address systems that are unequal or inequitable so that we can, you know, build back better, I guess, as the Biden campaign has said. Jenny Weiner is an associate professor of educational leadership at UConn's NEAG School of Education. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. After the break, how one district is working to get kids to show up to online school. Plus, the challenges of and solutions to finding enough teachers during a pandemic. It's next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the Common Sense Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative in its coverage of climate change and the evolving clean energy economy. Support also comes from Douglas Stone and Mary Schwab Stone through the Smart Family Foundation of New York. Welcome back. I'm Morgan Springer. More students are not showing up in class this year, especially in cities and towns where students are attending class remotely. And some have stopped going altogether. While that's keeping truant officers busy, a novel program in Brockton Public Schools in Massachusetts is sending youth mentors to their homes, trying to bring them back online. GBH Radio's Meg Woolhouse has the story. As John Williams dials up Anna Jameson on a recent morning, he knows his task is a delicate one. 
He wants to find out why your 16-year-old son, Glenn, hasn't logged into his remote classes since the school year began in September. He introduces himself softly, but Jameson jumps at the chance to talk. She's tried and tried to get her son out of bed and online, but he won't listen. It's 11 a.m. and Glenn's still in bed now, she says. William seizes the opportunity. Can I come over? Within 15 minutes, he's on the doorstep of Jameson's apartment in a three-decker. How are you? I'm doing okay. All right. Come on in. The smell of Lysol and incense are thick as Jameson offers a seat at her kitchen table. Williams explains that he's a contractor who works for the schools and that he's the last stop before the school takes legal action for truancy. Jameson's desperation bubbles up fast. The school said they've been trying to get in touch with him. I'm not allowed. I don't like this. I need to tell him to be back in school. Mm-hmm. I'm not liking this. I feel like he's not focusing more on work home. Mm-hmm. It's like I get him up every morning for um for his classes. It's like five minutes later I go back in there and he's like this. Yeah. She means work at home and she imitates her son asleep on his pillow. I'm like, okay, this is not working out. And we find him that in a lot of places. This is not working out for me. A groggy Glenn emerges in the doorway. Avoiding eye contact, he slumps into a seat at the kitchen table. Williams is not a truant officer, social worker, or guidance counselor. He's an ex-offender who runs a novel mentorship program for the schools, finding at-risk kids, the AWOL ones school staff haven't been able to reach. National surveys of educators find that student absenteeism has risen 10%, whether schools are in-person, hybrid, or remote. But the losses are as high as 12%, double the rate for in-person learning a year ago in remote classrooms. Todd Rogers is a public policy professor at Harvard who studies ways to improve school attendance. He predicts catastrophically bad levels of learning loss and disengagement in poor districts among legions of students struggling on the academic margins. I am am afraid. I'm especially afraid for the most vulnerable kids. The more you talk with anyone involved in education, you can't help but be terrified. Williams and his mentors routinely encounter parents with addiction issues, students who are tired from working to help support their family, or kids at home alone trading school for social media, gangs, or drugs. Spend a few days with him and you'll see a mother battling addiction break down and cry about her inability to get her son to log into school or meet a parent who smells of alcohol and other families that simply don't answer the door when William's team comes knocking. He's been doing street work for decades in Brockton, his hometown, where he still lives on the third floor of a triple-decker with his wife and three of his five kids. He attended Brockton High and many people know that he didn't graduate because at 17 he got in trouble and later went to prison for armed robbery. If they don't know, he tells them. Although school didn't keep him out of trouble, a relationship with a gym teacher he used to shoot hoops with proved pivotal for both men. Brockton Superintendent Michael Thomas is that former gym teacher. And when he wanted to fix the district's problem with chronic absenteeism a decade ago, he called on Williams. He's just one of those guys that has that fire inside him that makes him work so hard to help kids and reach them. And he... He's bluntly honest with him. The absentee rate in Brockton is a relatively low 7% this fall, Thomas says, due in part to Williams' program. But it's not cause for celebration. Thomas says while the district can get students logged in, it doesn't mean they're learning. What would help students engage? Hiring diverse teachers who look like the student body. Williams says there's a wide cultural divide in the district between the mostly white teachers from the suburbs and Brockton's 16,000 students a group that's 60% African-American, 17% Hispanic, and 16% white. It's the state's fifth largest school district, and nearly two-thirds of its students are at risk, 
either disabled, economically disadvantaged, or English language learners. Williams just hired four more mentors, all men of color, to handle his growing pandemic caseload. They're a diverse bunch, including several with college degrees and two former UMass football players. Thomas agrees that schools need to diversify their staffs, saying he has applied for three grants to make it happen in the face of district funding cuts and layoffs in recent years. When John is reached, usually that's because there's been already three or four visits by the adjustment counselor. There's been even maybe the principal or the assistant principal has visited the home. You know, there's a lot of things we put in place. There's phone calls, there's postcards, there's letters, um, guidance counselors are making calls, teachers are making calls every day. So, um, you know, when they get to John, it's the last resort because we haven't been able to do anything. Um, And, I mean, they can only take so many kids. Back at Glenn's kitchen table, Williams has identified a source of his undoing, late-night gaming. A semi-pro gamer himself, he lets Glenn know he'll be able to see if he's up all night. Williams asks Glenn if he realizes the pain he's causing his mother and reminds him he would probably fight anybody else who hurt her. It's hard to tell what Glenn's thinking, but Anna Jameson looks relieved. Two years ago, she regained full legal custody of her son, and she doesn't want a visit from a truant officer to jeopardize that. As Williams departs in the foyer, she asks how Glenn could learn from Williams' mistakes, but not his own father's, who's been in and out of jail. Williams' voice goes soft. For him, it's still his dad. He talks about how his mentors will wrap around Glenn, help him learn to make value-based decisions about the kind of man he wants to be in the eyes of his family. And that's that's all we can really do. So Okay, I need Glenn needs out of his life. Mm -hmm. I don't really do. Then he leaves. Him and his crew continue their rounds, winding through Brockton's gray back streets. Williams has a dozen mentors working for him, but he doesn't want to stop reaching out to kids in person. It's his calling, he says and there's more to do. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Meg Woolhouse. As COVID-19 cases continue to climb, it's getting harder for schools in Massachusetts to find enough teachers and staff to keep classrooms open. WBUR's Carrie Young reports many educators are looking at ways to stretch tight resources. Just after Thanksgiving, Falmouth High School principal Mary Gans got a call. The school had a positive case. Twelve of her staff members were considered close contacts, and now they had to quarantine. I said, I do, I just can't, I do not have the ability to cover all of their classes, even for the rest of the day. There just weren't the bodies that we could pull that would have satisfied that puzzle. Substitute teachers are really hard to come by right now, so the school had to go remote for a week. But Gans says having enough teachers is an ongoing challenge. We've been so short that I'll go and sub in classes when teachers are out. And I've done that in the past, but not like this year. And she isn't the only administrator pitching in to cover classes. What I'm hearing a lot is that they're using, you know, principals, assistant principals, superintendent, assistant superintendent to fill those gaps as much as possible. Tom Scott is the executive director of the Massachusetts Association of School Superintendents. He says this staffing strain is an issue across the state, and it's likely to get worse as the year goes on. Staff absences are just higher in the winter months, even in normal years. And this year, Scott says, some older teachers decided to take a leave of absence or retire because of COVID-19 health concerns. 
The state doesn't track how many teachers took a leave of absence, but retirement applications filed as the school year approached were 25 percent higher than those filed at the same time last year. To fill that gap where you saw the absence of those teachers, that's where we started to look for how do we tap into teaching assistants, paraprofessionals, and others who can sort of fill some of the, you know, the teaching opportunities that were there. At Cambridge Public Schools, the hybrid model the district developed called for one teacher and two paraprofessionals for each in-person class. All hands on deck is what we're doing here. To make that work, Human Resources Director Lisa Richardson says the district filled a lot of positions before the school year started. To have to hire 128 people in September is unprecedented, and it was difficult. So to meet that goal, the district expanded the criteria for who could work in a classroom. Now, if you have a bachelor's degree in something that is relatable, we're interested. Cambridge is one of many districts that's had to hire a lot of staff this fall. The state approved an emergency teaching license over the summer that's helped some school systems fill their vacancies. The state has issued about 5,600 so far. For non-specialist teachers, there are two minimum qualifications, a bachelor's degree and sound moral character. Applicants don't have to pass the state teaching certification test, the MTEL. And for that reason, Mary Najimy, the president of the Massachusetts Teachers Association, stresses these licenses must be temporary. We can't accept these as permanent changes because what winds up happening is our most needy students get the least qualified adults. The union did play a big role in creating the emergency teaching license, but Najimi says the people with the certification have to be seen as more than just staff who can safely monitor students. They shouldn't just be thrown into the hardest districts in the hardest circumstances without district support. And the obligation of supporting the district comes from the state. And for a lot of schools, dealing with this teacher shortage also requires a lot of stretching. Mashpee Public Schools on Cape Cod is looking for bigger spaces to put students when teachers have to be out. Superintendent Patricia DeBoer says her schools are trying to turn the gym and cafeteria into remote learning spaces. The larger rooms can just accommodate more students while still following the COVID-19 distancing guidelines. Where you could supervise their sort of online activity with less staffing and not expose anybody to any risk. Before school started, DeBoer and other CAPE superintendents had explored sharing teachers between districts. But that was too complicated to pull off quickly. Still, DeBoer thinks it could help schools all over the CAPE offer a wider variety of specialty classes in the future, like her district's Native American language class. She says, in a way, that's one silver lining that might come out of this situation. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Carrie Young. Pollution in our air, water, and on land could be linked to about 9 million premature deaths in the world each year, making it the biggest environmental cause of disease. That's how a new study from Boston College and the Woods Hole Oceanographic Institute sets the stage for their review on ocean pollution and the risks to our health. Philip Landrigan, the study's lead researcher, says 80% of ocean pollution comes from the land. So if we can control ocean pollution coming from the land will solve uh, the majority of the problem. What are we talking about in terms of coming from the land? This is like runoff? It's various sources. So runoff is certainly one big piece. Uh, Agricultural runoff, runoff from city streets, uncontrolled sewage releases. 
Another big source on land is coal combustion because coal combustion is the major source of mercury pollution in the ocean. And the way that works is that all coal contains some mercury. When thousands of tons of coal are burned, like in power plants, steel mills, that mercury is vaporized, goes up into the atmosphere, comes down into the oceans, and then it concentrates in fish, especially in fish at the top of the food chain, like tuna, like swordfish, like striped bass, like bluefish. And when people eat those fish, the mercury can get into their body. And if a pregnant woman should eat a fish that's contaminated with high levels of mercury, that mercury can get into her body, pass through to her baby, and cause injury to the baby, specifically damage to the baby's developing brain. Well, let's stick with um, fish for a second, because another pollution we're exposed to when we eat fish is microplastics. How is that happening? Well, about 10 to 12 million tons of plastic get into the ocean every year. And once it gets into the ocean, that plastic is pretty much immortal. It breaks down, the big pieces don't remain big, and eventually they become microplastics, as they're called. And these are very interesting particles because they contain in them all of the toxic chemicals that were in the plastic in the first place, the phthalates, the bisphenol A, the flame retardants. And these microplastic particles are picked up by fish and shellfish, and then they get into us when we eat fish and shellfish, carrying with them all of those toxic chemicals I just mentioned. I found this pretty astonishing. You guys write that an average person consumes between 74,000 and 121,000 microplastic particles per year, which is sounds like so much. Do we know how consuming microplastics affects us in terms of our health? We know more about the toxic chemicals that are in the microplastics than about the plastics themselves. But we know that those toxic chemicals that travel with the plastics can cause all forms of harm. So exposures to uh, endocrine disruptors are especially dangerous during during pregnancy because um, if those chemicals get into a, an infant in the womb, they can uh, interfere with the child's development, especially with the development of the reproductive organs. Now, In the report, you say that ocean pollution is just getting worse, not better. Can you talk a bit about why that is? Well, ocean pollution is getting worse because production of chemicals and plastics is going up all around the world. Global chemical production is increasing at the rate of three to three and a half percent per year. Same for plastics. At the same time, there's increasing development, population development and construction along the world's coasts. But the good news is that even though ocean pollution is a big problem, a very big problem, and a problem that's getting worse, it is, in fact, a preventable problem. And we can say that with a fair degree of confidence because we have seen countries around the world, the United States and many others, do a marvelous job of controlling other forms of pollution, air pollution, drinking water contamination, for example. And we've done this through a combination of passing laws, setting policies, enforcing those laws, creating incentives. And, for example, we've reduced air pollution in this country by 70% since we passed the Clean Air Act in 1970. So our group of scientists who wrote this report on ocean pollution are of the firm opinion that this same box of tools can be applied to control ocean pollution. 
Yeah, well, let's talk about some of those tools you propose. Um, You and the other authors make some ambitious suggestions like eliminating coal combustion and banning all uses of mercury, banning single-use plastics, banning certain types of manufactured chemical pollutants and pesticides. This would require big changes in industry. In particular, it would have to be global. Does that sound feasible to you? Like, how do we make that happen? Yeah, it's not feasible today. It's not going to happen this afternoon. But we have to start. And what's needed is really not so much technology at this point as political will and leadership. Philip Landrigan is a doctor and professor at Boston College. He's the lead author of a study on the impacts of ocean pollution on health. Dr. Landrigan, thanks for coming on next. Morgan, it's it's been a pleasure and thank you very much. Next week, we're going to spend the entire show talking about climate change. New England is already seeing its impacts, and scientists project the effects of climate change will become more severe and deadly, especially if we do little to address it. So ahead of Inauguration Day, we'll look at how the incoming Biden administration could affect our trajectory. It's a special from the New England News Collaborative and America Amplified. All right, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, why a group of Vermonters began dancing in inflatable costumes to bring joy during the pandemic. It's next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage including the John Merck Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative in its coverage of climate and clean energy. Okay, we're back. What would you do if your business plummeted during the middle of the pandemic? This is a very real scenario for many business owners across New England. And when that happened to Burlington, Vermont resident Jenny Rook, she decided to dance in an inflatable T-Rex costume. Vermont Public Radio's Elodie Reed has the story. Jenny Rook co-owns Rookie's Root Beer with her husband, Dave. Since 2005, the pair has been making soda in their converted one-car garage and selling it to around 100 Vermont bars and restaurants. But when Governor Phil Scott issued his stay-home order in March, Rook says their business was decimated. 90% of our business is draft sales online. So when the restaurant shut down, we shut down. Um, And then when uh, a lot of the uh, things came up for the CARES Act, when that came through for the government, we didn't qualify because you needed to have at least one employee and we're both owners. Rook, 46, teaches some Zumba as a side hustle, though the governor's order meant she couldn't do that for a while either. Around the time that normal life stopped, Rook's friend Regina Patterson says she was late night shopping on Amazon when a suggested item popped up, an inflatable costume in the shape of a tan and very top-heavy T-Rex. Patterson, who also teaches Zumba, explains that she and Rook have an inside joke about the song Walk the Dinosaur. Naturally, she decided to buy the $60 dinosaur suit for her friend. And I put it in my checkout box and had it sent to her as just sort of a little funny pick-me-up. Rook received the package around April Fool's Day. When she and her husband opened it, Rook said they were, quote, belly laughing. Right away, Rook decided to don the seven-foot T-Rex. She's four foot 11, by the way. I said, I'm going for a walk. And so I, I made, got my sparkly paper together and I made a sign 
and it said, um, be kind and stay safe. And I just marched around the New North End um, every day for about three weeks. I went out for a walk. She started delivering root beer while wearing the suit, dropping off 32-ounce soda cans to local homes, and then starting driveway dance parties with customers, their kids, and neighbors. Rook quickly became a local celebrity. Somewhat of a local sensation over the past week or so. Take a look at this. She's been dubbed the Coronasaurus Rex. She's bringing the prehistoric party to front lawns and driveways all around Chittenden County and making some dino-loving friends along the way. Rook in her costume also made regular stops outside Birchwood Terrace, a nursing home in the new North End. In the spring, Birchwood suffered a COVID-19 outbreak that killed 22 residents. One woman in the dementia unit, Rook says, knew exactly what to do whenever the T-Rex showed up outside the window. That woman dancing with me, even though she had dementia, like that brought her so much happiness. And she would tap the window and have me lower my nose and she kisses my nose. Like that's her thing she wants to. So she's <laughs> on the window and this guy had a, um, took a little video clip of it and he, and he sent it to me. And I'm like, this is everything. As the pandemic continued, Rook kept dancing. Patterson joined in after she recovered from a bout with COVID-19, wearing a bright pink rainbow unicorn costume. Some of Rook's Zumba students got in on the act, too. Which is how on a recent Sunday, nearly a dozen dancers, including a chicken, a cow, a hippo and a tutu, and of course the T-Rex, all ended up outside Elderwood, another Burlington nursing home. The group calls itself the Inflatables. Carting a portable loudspeaker from window to window, they found a few residents to dance with and staff too. For an hour, they shimmied and congaed and even twerked a little. The visit to Elderwood was especially poignant for Rook, since a friend's stepfather recently died there after contracting COVID-19, and the friend, who lives out of state, couldn't travel to Vermont. The facility has been the hardest hit by the recent surge, and the day the inflatables danced there, the health department had recorded 115 cases and 12 deaths. And having to not be able to go home to love and support the ones that we love the most, you know, it's hard. So, you know, we're all just trying to, to, to pick up the pieces and, and to help everybody out by, you know, acting silly. And making her smile, which did make her smile, because it was something that we could do for her, for him, to remember him. It's been about nine months since Rook first donned the T-Rex suit. People keep requesting the inflatables for birthdays, weddings, graduations, and Rook says they keep showing up. You know, in the beginning, clearly it was always just a joke, and we're like, this can't keep going, but it is. So yeah, so we're we're just out to, to you know, to, to be happy, to... to Spread joy and like, we'll keep doing that. I can't believe we're going to have to get snowshoes for these suits, but maybe. <laughs> In the meantime, Rookies continues to offer driveway delivery slash dance parties, and they're hoping the business can hold on through the end of the pandemic. When this is all eventually over, Rook says she wants to throw a great big root beer float party. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Elodie Reed. The deaths of more than 20,000 people in New England have been attributed to COVID-19.
In Connecticut, over 6,000 residents have died, among them Urbano Cifuentes. Connecticut Public Radio's Brenda Leon spoke with members of the Cifuentes family of West Hartford. For 25 years, Urbano Cifuentes worked as a janitor at the University of Hartford. His daughter, Rosemary Torres, remembers him as a generous man, hardworking and with a great sense of humor. He was a very, very loving, very tender man. Sorry if I break down a little. It's been difficult for the four of us because it was very surprising the way he left. It was so sudden. He was always very hardworking, very cheerful, and always joking around. The Cifuentes family migrated from Peru in 1993 and settled in Connecticut. Torres says her father was one of the many essential workers in the pandemic who worked two jobs to provide additional income for their family and also to ensure offices were cleaned and disinfected. There are many people out there who are essential workers, and unfortunately my father belonged to that community, the Latino community. I'm frustrated and angry that my father is not with us. He had a life ahead of him. He was waiting for his third granddaughter to be born. His wife, Marta Matienzo Cifuentes, was also an essential worker, but retired after losing her husband. She says she wants people to know his story. I would like for working people to be heard, because these people are exposing their lives day after day in order to survive in this world. Urbano Cifuentes is one of 130 members across the East Coast of 32BJ Service Employees International Union who have lost their lives during the pandemic. His family hopes that companies will do as much as they can to protect employees as the next wave of COVID-19 sweeps away Black and Latino essential workers' lives. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Brenda Leon. And that's our show this week. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts. Just search Next New England. Next is produced by me, Morgan Springer, and Lily Tyson. Vanessa De La Torre is our executive editor. The executive producer is Katie Talarski. The music you hear on Next is by musicians in New England. If you want to know who you heard today, just visit our show page at nextnewengland.org. The New England News Collaborative is powered by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, Connecticut Public Radio, Vermont Public Radio, New Hampshire Public Radio, Maine Public Radio, New England Public Media, CAI, WBUR, WSHU, GBH, and the Public's Radio. 